Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast, where we explore the exciting science behind heart rate variability. The material discussed in this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Please check with your medical provider to make sure any suggestions or strategies are right for you. Visit us at the OptimalHRV.com website to learn more about the Optimal HRV app, download a free copy of Matt's book, Heart Rate Variability, and also get show notes and additional resources around heart rate variability and its applications. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. Jeff Summers back here with uh, my co-host, Matt Bennett. And, welcome uh, back, Jeff. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. Super excited to be here, not only to talk again to you, which is always a pleasure, but we've got a distinguished guest and friend, Dr. Janelle Mensinger, joining us today to talk about the really cool research she is doing. Um, so, so Dr. Janelle, how, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here and see you guys again. We um, had such a great time last month at the where were we? The AAPB or conference in, <laughs> the conference in Dallas, Texas. Everybody's first trip post COVID. It was the first conference back. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. I forgot how fun conferences were. Yeah, and, and Janelle, just Janelle, Janelle's amazing. Uh, I, I think That's before great. she kind of formally introduces herself. I, I, we hadn't talked through the research study, I don't believe. And so I, I met her, I, I would have called her a friend after about 90 minutes, uh, invited <laughs> her to join our nonprofit board at Optimal Innovation Group. I think day two that I met, met you. So, uh, you know, it's so exciting to be back at conferences. You just don't get that. Uh, one is you, you don't usually uh, become fast friends with someone. We were already exchanging like uh, how we could go to each houses for vacation right. uh, by day three. So <laughs> dog right. city, we each have bad dogs. So that's uh, right. <laughs> it was a blast. <laughs> that's right well after your recent move to florida in the swimming pool in the backyard yes yes and matt's you know matt's availability to skiing it, it made sense you know, you know. Kind of resort living at home. Off, right exactly <laughs> and we both have bad dogs so maybe exactly. dog sitting we would normally not ask someone to dog sit our dogs but uh <laughs> yes the the bad dog commonality could make this a lot easier too Fast friends. <laughs> we love bad dogs. <laughs> it, it is amazing, though, what being back in person can do. Because, yeah. Janelle, I mean, you and I have known each other for because all three year. of us for over a year now, right? As, yes. as we were studying, kind of getting prepped for the study. Um, and, you know, and I always had a great relationship and rapport via Zoom, but obviously, yes. you know, it, it, you take it to the next level when you actually get to spend some time together. So. It sure does. It sure does. It was we such are, a ball. We are honored to have you as a guest today. We certainly appreciate your time. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so maybe if you don't mind getting started, just, you know, a little bit of uh, background on yourself and, and uh, you know, helping our, our, our listeners understand your background and your expertise. And, and then we'll, we'll just kind of get into it from there. Sounds great. So I am an associate professor at Nova Southeastern University. I'm in the Department of uh, Clinical and School Psychology. And my background is really eating disorders research. And um, I'm also an expert in statistical methodology and measurement theory. So I'm at Nova Southeastern teaching the doctoral students in psychology, statistics, measurement theory, and eating disorders. So it's a really great combination for me, given that I have this expertise in research methodology and statistics and an eating disorders background. And now I'm in a program where I can put both of them to good use. So that's a little bit about me. That's fantastic. So, so, so tell us a little bit more about your path and sort of how you, you honed in on these areas of expertise. I'm, I'm yeah, curious. absolutely. So, well, eating disorders goes back to my graduate school days. So that 
takes me to the late 90s. So I've been on this uh, this long path of researching eating disorders, you know, for over 20 years now. Um, in terms of what brought me to all of you at Optimal HRV was actually more related to my, my expertise in, in methodology. I was a, a faculty member and statistician at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. Um, like I said, I recently moved to Florida. So until this past fall, I was, um, I was in Pennsylvania at Villanova University. And we were doing um, a study on how the COVID-19 pandemic was impacting healthcare providers, frontline direct healthcare providers. And in our data, I being the, the statistician um, co-PI on the project was starting to drill down into the data in late 2020. And it was, it was really quite riveting to see what was going on for our front, frontline healthcare workers. Uh, they were burning out. They were really uh, ready, ready to quit. Not surprisingly, I mean, as you all know, Matt, you've been doing a lot of this work in, um, you know, caring for health or caring for the caring professions, yeah. essentially. And there's, there's just a lot of issues with compassion fatigue and moral injury and uh, burnout. And um, one thing that I noticed, which was actually pretty surprising to me, I guess maybe it shouldn't have been, but that the... Um, the healthcare providers were coping using disordered eating as um, a pretty common um, you know, coping mechanism. In fact, if we looked at our one um, measurement scale, we looked at loss of control eating behaviors. Over a third of our healthcare providers were engaging in what we would call clinically significant loss of control eating behaviors. Wow. So this was, you know, a pretty striking statistic to me. So the first thing I wanted to do was, okay, we need to do more than just like survey our healthcare providers. We really need to do some kind of remote intervention to help folks, to help folks relax, to help folks build resilience and take care of themselves in this, um, in this protracted pandemic. So, um, so that's really what turned me to heart rate variability. I hadn't done some research with heart rate variability a number of years ago and I knew a little bit about it. I knew that it was related to psychological well-being, physical well-being, I didn't know a lot about biofeedback. In fact, I, I should be more honest. I, I knew really nothing about biofeedback. I had heard of it and that was about mm -hmm. it. Yep. So, Which is a lot more than a lot of folks. You know, <laughs> until very recently. It's... Yeah, it's, it's amazing how, how little I knew and what I realize it offers now, given if I were to go back two years. In fact, Matt had a... Um, a podcast early on in your podcast series about like the way you were two years earlier before yeah. you had learned about HRV. And it made me think about where I was because I really knew nothing about biofeedback. And so I, I started digging deep into HRV and I came across biofeedback pretty quickly in the literature. And that led me to Ina Kazan's work. And we are all um, you know, big fans of e Dr. <laughs> Ina Kazan and her um, mindful, ba mindfulness-based biofeedback. And so I actually heard her then on a podcast and started to really think about this use of a HR an, an HRV biofeedback intervention for the healthcare providers, especially because there was this component of mindfulness involved. Like I think right. her view of HRV biofeedback 
was what really attracted me. This, this notion that it actually can be a, an activity that can coexist with mindfulness components. And it's really a mindful intervention. And there's some component of, of conflict there because biofeedback is really intentional um, where mindfulness is sort of that, like sitting back and accepting what is. So, but she did this beautiful description of, of how they can coexist. So I right away signed up for her intro to HRV or actually intro to biofeedback period. It wasn't just HRV biofeedback last March and um, fell in love with biofeedback and that's when I learned about optimal HRV. And um, so I started to, to look into using this digital intervention for our healthcare providers. And optimal HRV was really the, um, the tool that was kind of missing in, in the preparations for this grant study. So you sort of like, it, it was a big puzzle, like when I was December <laughs> 2020, trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to do this digital intervention? I've got these, um, you know, healthcare providers in need. They're having a lot of symptoms of traumatic stress. They're coping through disordered eating, many of them. Um, and so what I actually did was I, um, you know, I invited people who had high levels of distress and um, and applied your app, the Optimal HRV app, to to help them, um, you know, cope with what was going on for them. And it, it was a pretty amazing experience. So that's a little bit of the path. I mean, <laughs> I yeah. So so I would love to ask uh, because one of the fascinating things, uh, and I, I've had a couple. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not one that believes in synchronicity or anything too woo-woo about that. But, you know, I, I've, I've had a lot of uh, uh, recent contact with, with folks in your field, uh, you know, and it's really been in some ways eye-opening to probably somebody who's clinically worked a little bit in the eating disorder, but not, uh, not for a long time. And so I wonder, you know, obviously with biofeedback, especially HRV biofeedback, HRV monitoring, we really, we're really working with the parasympathetic, sympathetic, ventral vagal nerve. In other words, a lot of fancy words for the stress response. So I, I just, I just wanted to, to hit your expertise early on, because obviously, and for those that don't know, healthcare professionals were not doing that great before the pandemic hit when you look at statistically compared to other folks. And um, what's pretty obvious, I imagine to everybody, COVID hit the healthcare professionals uh, maybe more than anybody else. I think that's at least as much as anybody else, I think is a very fair yeah. statement. So yeah. I just out of kind of my interest and background, where do you see in your research and expertise when we talk about the stress response, the, the connection between stress, uh, maybe even trauma, and um, how that might contribute to um, unhealthy eating? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm certain that there are connections. We, we see lots and lots of comorbidity yeah. Not surprisingly, as you, I'm sure, are aware, between folks who have had trauma and who ultimately end up with severe clinical eating disorders and all along the spectrum of just eating distress, disordered eating, or body concerns. So I, how would the two connect? I mean, well, trauma and eating, we know, connect. I think I'm pretty safe to say trauma is a precipitating factor in eating disorders, in disorder eating, in, in feelings, negative feelings about the body. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the stress response, we know that trauma is um, damages the stress response. We know that trauma damages or lowers, I don't know if I should say, use the word damages, but lowers HRV. Yeah. So I, um, I think that if we can 
get interventions to enhance our ability to cope and enhance the, the, the stress response or sort of strengthen that vagal tone, then we will have some capacity to work on some of those traumatic experiences with folks who are, you know, dealing with this eating distress or disordered eating. Um, you know, I don't think there's a lot, actually, I, not that I don't think, I don't see much literature on um, how HRV can be used in eating disorders. And I think we're, we're looking at a huge gap right there. I, I think that we, um, you know, we have overlooked a very good potential adjunctive treatment by considering, um, you know, not considering, I should say, HRV biofeedback. Um, I don't think HRV biofeedback would cure a person right. completely. But I think as an adjunctive treatment, it provides this, this like way to validate and to visualize in a tangible way what's happening inside. And you've used that sort of like um, term in the past, uh, you know, window under the skin or yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> and that is so, and, and the x-ray, I mean, yeah. the x-ray for what's going on for people, I think for people with eating disorders and particularly people with trauma who have eating disorders, there's so much confusion and there's so much around this this idea of what really happened to me mm -hmm. that when you see something like the HRV change, get better, or even start out low, it's almost like a validator yeah. that Great. something real <clears throat> that, that I can see is, is showing me that, yeah, trauma had an impact on me. I'm not crazy. Right. I'm, you know, I, I'm not just like making all of this up. This is a real tangible problem. And we don't, we don't get that. You've talked about that. We don't get that in therapy and psychology in whatever mental health profession you're coming from. We just don't get that same biometric that our medical partners in healthcare do get with whatever vital sign they're using. And this I think provides that. And for folks with trauma, I think it can be very powerful. Awesome. That, that, that's basically yep. a much better version of why I asked Jeff <laughs> to start this company. <laughs> that, that's a much better version of, uh, dude, everybody needs this. Uh, <laughs> and they don't have it. We got to create it. And uh, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's and why this we started is why we're this, fast friends. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I would that's love amazing. for... For so, you to share some of some yeah. of the research uh, yeah. that, that we were yes. honored. I know I speak for Jeff here too. Just Absolutely. really honored to be be a part of. Yes. Yeah, and so, I think the exciting thing, you know, you're just kind of getting the started, right? And, exactly. and where this is going to go and where you're going to take this is, you know, incredible. The vision you have behind this is really exciting for everybody. So you know, it's not so only exciting. talking about the research so far, but also where you want to take it. I think is is going to be really interesting for everyone to learn about. Yes. So like I said, there's very, very little research available right now in biofeedback and eating disorders. We have some, um, some in neurofeedback, um, a handful, like I'm talking maybe three at most that looked uh, at, at some HRV stuff, um, pilot, very, very piloty. Um, so because we had so little data, um, and nothing with the kind of population that I was utilizing, you know, healthcare providers, and nothing ever done in a remote situation. This calls for 
something we call, as, as Matt, I'm sure you've heard, um, pilot feasibility data. I mean, we, we, need to, we need it to start really like at the beginning. So it's a pilot feasibility trial that we did. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, we, we utilize the Optimal HRV app. Um, we utilize these little devices for um, our participants. So once they consented, everything was done remotely. We had them um, do a Zoom meeting with me to consent them. So I spent about an hour just talking about the study, talking about HRV and about the app a little and um, asked them if they were interested and every single person was. I mean, that was sort of telling me right away, this is needed. All of these people were so excited. As soon as I sent that email out, and, it, and I didn't even get through my full list of, of distressed healthcare workers. There was yeah. like a massive influx that came back to me and like being a single person trying to consent people. It was like just trying to do it as fast as I could. So that was just sort of like, you know, goal one. Like, can we, can yeah. we even recruit people? Is this something that's feasible from an implementation perspective? Well, that was answered within the first week. Yes, we can. And, and you weren't sure. I mean, I remember conversations we had and yes. you know, as we were prepping for everything. I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know how quickly we're going to find, uh, you know, study participants. And That was a, so true. We were really unsure. I mean, I remember the discussions with Ina, like it, it could be a flop. We may need to like pull people out of the woodwork to get them to sign up not the case. It was, you know, as fast as, I mean, I remember sending you guys emails, sign up this, sign up this person, this, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was nonstop right when I moved into Florida. <laughs> so, it was. Was you cool. had quite a big going on last fall. I really yeah. did. Transitioning, deciding whether you wanted to make transitions and then yes. buying new homes, selling new homes. Oh my God. Yes. So yeah, the, the whole idea of implementation feasibility was, was met very quickly. We, we signed people up. Um, one of our biggest, as you recall, one of our biggest um, sort of detractors was really the, um, the device was having some connection issues. So we used that, um, the Kaido and we had some issues with, uh, with getting that to connect but, um, and we did lose some people from that. And, and that was probably one of the biggest barriers, I would say, to success to, you know, in terms of the implementation end of it. So we're looking at other options for different kinds of devices, but, um, you know, by and large, AIM-1 feasibility implementation, we definitely, we met that usability was another goal. And that was basically the question of, you know, do the people find this to be an acceptable and usable app? And, um, and it was, you know, it's a, essentially an, a subjective uh, rating, but we had on a quantitative scale, how likely would you be to recommend this app to appear? or a colleague or a friend. And I think it was something like 85%. That was my first pass of the data. So we had 20 participants get through at that point. And that was what I presented at the, um, the AAPB conference. And then um, we asked people if they would likely continue to use it. And that was 75%. So we did pretty well there. Um, we had some wonderful qualitative data come back as well about people just saying this was amazing and this was so, um, you know, enlightening and this helped them sleep, it helped them stay calm and people were really grateful. They were so gracious to, you know, the efforts that we put into trying to um, find something to help people kind of get through the stressors, these elevated stressors. So that was really exciting. So all of those preliminary um, study kinds of aims really went well. So the secondary aim though was about what we call when you're doing a pilot study signals of efficacy. And that was where I started to test this conceptual model that I had proposed. And that conceptual model 
was where we start with, um, you know, the, if you look at a, a conceptual model, this is obviously a, a podcast, but um, I do have a slide if you wanted me to pull up. Sure. And, and just so people know, uh, we'll, we'll put this in the show notes. Uh, you can find that at uh, heartratevariabilitypodcast.com or optimalhrv.com. And if you haven't watched this on YouTube, you can see it there too. So Let with me, that, let's see this slide. Let's yeah, see this slide. Yes. Uh, I want to make sure I'm sharing the right screen here. Can you all see the slide? Yes. We can, absolutely. All right. So let's do, so you can actually see it in full and not all the other background stuff. We'll click that button. Did it come up? No, didn't do anything. There we go. So this is the, this is the conceptual model. You have HRV biofeedback on the left, which is just sort of the box that represents what's the intervention we're using. And then it, um, it moves you know, from left to right to show what are the processes that I'm hypothesizing are responsible for the ultimate change in disordered eating behaviors. So the first process in this model is this notion of interoceptive awareness. And that's sort of a fancy term for basically how do you feel and are you able to identify those feelings and respond to them in a way that is um, functional or, um, or, or a positive. Like if I, if I feel hungry, can I identify that? And am I able to respond to that? I mean, that's a complicated question because obviously there's a lot of things that go into if I'm mm -hmm. able to respond to the hunger, like where am I, when is it happening? Um, but that's, you know, that's one of the components of interoceptive awareness. Others relate to, I mean, and that's just one of the body related ones. Other things about the body relate to the degree to which you may trust your body, the degree to which you feel safe in your body, so do you have a positive embodied experience, if you will? So this notion of positive embodiment comes out in the body-related interoceptive awareness. And then the other component of interoceptive awareness is emotion-related. Can we self-regulate our emotions? Can we identify our emotions? Can we, um, you know, can we react to them in healthful ways. Um, so these are the notions of interoceptive awareness that, that are theoretically improved through something like biofeedback, HRV biofeedback. If you engage in HRV biofeedback, theoretically your capacity to be interoceptively aware or have good interoception, which is another way to state the same thing, is going to be enhanced. Interoception is what gives us this sort of self-regulatory capacity and improves our ability to, to cope with stress, to cope with emotions, and to answer the signals from our body, hunger, thirst, heat, free, you know, being cold. If I'm cold, can I, you know, do I, do I have the capacity to know that? If I'm in pain, do I have the capacity to know that and respond to it and not just keep running if my leg is throbbing? So then once we improve interoceptive awareness, the next step is in this theoretical model is uh, mindful self-care behaviors. And these are the behavioral components of, of kind of what's coming out of what I just described. This might be something like your eating behavior, intuitive eating. So I'm not going to disordered eating yet. Intuitive eating is something quite different. Intuitive eating is listening to the body's signals for hunger and satiety. So when I'm hungry, can I you know, trust that and respond to it? When I'm full, can I trust that? Do I recognize it and respond to it by stop? by stopping eating. 
So that's one of the mindful self-care behaviors. Another is this notion of body appreciation. Do I appreciate my body and it's and all that it does for me, that it, how it functions and how it how it looks? Do I have a love for my body? Um, self-compassion is another one of the mindful self-care behaviors. You know, we all kind of know what self-compassion means. Can I be kind to myself? Um, so these are the, the primary mindful self-care behaviors. And then of course, with um, mindful self-care, the idea is that if we can improve that, that that will ultimately decrease the disordered eating behaviors. So that's, that's the underlying model of how and why HRV biofeedback might be a good intervention for folks with eating disorders. So back to the data, we- um, It was really cool by the way. <clears throat> yeah, so really it was- sharing that with everybody. Yeah. Sure. It was pretty exciting. Um, the data, I'm just sort of fast forwarding through the slides to get to that. The data showed us, so again, this is what we call signal of efficacy data. This is um, at the end of the study. So we had all 24 participants who completed the study in this uh, particular analysis. And this slide is showing how both emotion-related and body-related interoceptive awareness have statistically significantly and clinically meaningfully improved after the HRV, the optimal HRV intervention. So we had people utilize the app for eight weeks and we measured them on interoceptive awareness um, using a, a validated tool before they started HRV biofeedback. And then we measured them after they were completed with the intervention. And what this slide shows through these bar graphs um, is that, that scores were on average significantly improved. And we have effect sizes here. And just to give you a few words about what an effect size is, an effect size allows us to really understand the meaning of, or the importance, I should say, of the change. If you, particularly when you have a lot of people in a study, even a very tiny change can show something that is statistically significant. So what we see a lot of times in, in research, particularly with, um, you know, related to health matters, we might say, we might see something like, oh, well, the, um, you know, blood pressure improved or the people lost weight and it may be like a pound or the blood pressure improvement might be like one or two milligrams per mer of mercury. And it's really not a huge meaningful, clinically meaningful change and effect size kind of allows us to contextualize that change by situating it in the amount of variation in that change. So when we see an effect size around one, the, the scale starts at zero, which would be like no effect, and then goes basically to infinity. Um, but when we see something around one, it's actually considered a very large effect. That means that we have a full standard deviation change in the difference. And a standard deviation is actually a pretty big, like, I mean, if you, if you think about what you remember from, you know, maybe your intro to stat class, a standard deviation is, is a big deal. Like that's a, a full, like, you know, pretty big chunk of that bell curve. So we, we are seeing a standard deviation change here in interoceptive awareness, which was, which was a pretty exciting uh, finding for a signal of efficacy. Again, this is a signal of efficacy because it's not a randomized controlled trial that was, you know, built with all of the controls in place. So we saw, um, very exciting changes also in mindful self-care behaviors. 
we saw uh, what we would call very large effect sizes on self-compassion. So people actually became more self-compassionate after participating in the optimal HRV biofeedback intervention. They also became um, better intuitive eaters. So that was between a medium to large effect size, a, a medium effect size, which is generally what we want for something that's clinically meaningful. That's about 0.5. What's large is about a 0.8. And like I said, a one would be very large. So for intuitive eating, our effect size was 0.7. So we would say, you know, me medium to large. And then for body appreciation, people actually even improved their appreciation of their body after participating in this intervention. And that was again, between the medium and large effect size um, ranges. In terms of um, these other three mindful self-care behaviors, they're called mindful relaxation. So this isn't surprising, um, you know, people were more able to mindfully relax after participating in the biofeedback exercises for two months. They also were able to engage in better physical care of their bodies. So this was looking at things like, you know, are you um, drinking water? Are you going on walks? Do you eat fruits and vegetables? Um, do you engage in things like yoga or um, Taekwondo. I mean, these are some of the examples they gave. And then lastly, which was um, also a very large effect size was a mindful awareness. So are people mindfully aware of what's going on in their, in their minds and body? Which again, is not terribly surprising given we found the findings in interoceptive awareness. And then lastly, the most exciting and sort of unknown about this research was would it do anything to change eating behaviors, disordered eating behaviors? Yeah. And in fact, we have here also very large effect sizes. So that was, you know, super exciting. Um, again, we have to remember it's just a pre-post single arm trial. So we don't have the benefits of saying, you know, this is a randomized control trial. So there aren't these implicit controls in place. Um, some of this could be uh, due to timing or history effects, such as, you know, maybe the, um, the pandemic, you know, that, that might've changed from time A to time B. Um, but the, the fact that we had such large effect sizes here is encouraging and it's suggestive of support for the conceptual model that I showed where HRV biofeedback operates through these mechanisms, through these processes of interoceptive awareness, mindful self-care behaviors to enhance or improve a loss of control eating and disordered eating. It's amazing. So, I mean, you know, you look at these results, I mean, how, how did this, what, what were your expectations? I mean, did this sort of exceed expectations? Was this what you were hoping for? I mean, you know, obviously well, it, you know, these are pretty compelling results, right? So Yeah, yeah. The, I have to say they did exceed my ex expectations. I really didn't know how this was going to go. And that's really what any pilot feasibility study is you sort of just, you know, are going in with this unknown of not being sure, is this intervention going to be meaningful for these, you know, these individuals? Is it going to be acceptable or useful? And we kind of established that with our, um, you know, with the data I talked about initially, but more importantly, is it going to be efficacious? And and as a pilot study, again, we have to be wary that um, sometimes we overestimate effect sizes in pilot studies. Um, you know, we obviously need repli replication. That's one of the, the hallmarks of good research is that we need to replicate findings. And this is um, certainly, I think, a really good preliminary set of, of data to say replication is needed. Replication is something that I hope I can, I can get future support to do from granting agencies. But absolutely, my expectations were exceeded. 
I thought maybe they would, they would touch upon some of these um, outcomes, you know, the loss of control eating and disordered eating. But I was, I was feeling like, you know, that I definitely didn't have, you know, really, I wasn't convinced that it was going to do anything there. I, I thought interceptive awareness, I think most people in the biofeedback field would suspect that, yeah, it's, it's improving somebody's interoceptive awareness. And we know that folks with poor interoception tend to have more mental health problems. That's, that's something that's been well supported in the data. There's more depression, more anxiety, more trauma, eating disorders, again, huge with interoceptive awareness. That, that was really what led me to HRV biofeedback to begin with. When I started to see connections between HRV biofeedback and interoception, I already knew that interoception was something that folks with eating disorders struggle with. So once I saw that connection, that HRV biofeedback fixes interoception, well, geez, then if interoception is truly a, a mechanism to improve eating disorders, then let's put this all together. Yeah. That, that was really what yeah. drove it for me. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, and Matt, I'm sure you've got some feedback too, but for me, the, the thing that is also really cool about this is, you know, just sort of the way and the methodology that, that you incorporated throughout the study. I mean, you can extrapolate this into everybody's life, right? And, uh, you know, it gets outside of just the, the eating disorder world. And, uh, you know, I think we can all, we can all benefit, right? And, and just to sort of see statistical analysis around what a, a short period of time in a, you know, the study that you did and the effect that it had on the folks that participated who, you know, to your point, were in very challenging environment work-wise prior to and during the study that this could have such a dramatic impact so quickly, you know, it's just really encouraging, I think, for everybody else to hear that, so. Yeah, it does, and I think it, it speaks volumes to what it can do for, I mean, this is a general population study. These are not individuals with clinical eating disorders. These are folks who are coping with eating, you know, disordered eating and, and are experiencing eating distress. So it really speaks to the general population. and and mental health sort of more generally, we're not dealing with a clinical population here. The right. next step might be, you know, down the line to see if this can be an adjunctive treatment in a clinical population. But from a general population perspective, I think this speaks you know, volumes to, to that. I'm, yeah, and I, I, when I saw you present this at the conference, I was like so proud, like that we were a part of helping to, to uncover. And this is a, even a little bit, I think you've added a few more folks maybe since uh, yeah. the conference presentation. So this is even new data to, to me is. as well. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I just, and I, I'm, my, my only hesitation is I, I may open a can of worms here that might need to have you back to talk about uh, more, but, but I, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Um, you know, I, I think we could all, especially listeners to this podcast, especially if this isn't your first episode, realize that to some extent establishing, you know, your residence frequency breathing rate and really uh, mindfulness, you know, as maybe more of a generic term, even how that helps to promote the health of the nervous system. It, it seems like we're breaking though, or breaking patterns in some ways. I mean, with your model is like, the, I, I would imagine a lot of the disordered eating has become probably an unconscious coping skill yeah. for some folks, especially folks who are experiencing a uh, an unhealthy level of distress in their life. And so I guess what's like, I'm trying to put the pieces together. Like, are, are we helping to bring a pattern into consciousness that's usually unconscious? Or are we... I mean, there's definitely some insight there. I, I don't know. Like I said, I, I don't have enough to formulate a question, but I'm just, I, I guess, 
do, do you have any thoughts about what might be happening here? <laughs> so it's such a good question. And I think, <laughs> oh, it's a horrible question. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I appreciate that. Maybe what's underneath the question it, it, is it was, good, but <laughs> it's a good topic to discuss. The question itself is terrible. But it, it begs it. it begs the question of you know needing or it, it it sort of just gives us the reasoning to to keep studying this awesome. in order to to better understand. Now I can do a little bit more than I've done. This is very preliminary data analysis. I literally just got these data in like a few weeks ago. I think our last participant put in their data in in like midday late April so I mean we're talking a couple weeks and um, I haven't done what we call mechanistic modeling or mediation something we call mediation models to understand a little bit about what you're asking like what's going on here what are we uncovering I have other variables that haven't been shown here too like for instance what I presented at the conference uh, these are different slides um, included also stress. So we had massive improvements in perceptions of stress. We also saw uh, improvements, and I don't think they were quite as massive, like they weren't these very, very large effect sizes. They were on the large side, but I think they were more like medium to large. Um, improvements in resilience. So we, we did a, um, a measure of resilience that was um, consistent with this theory of um, a salutogenesis, this idea that uh, we're looking for these holistic health um, or holistic, uh, what's the better term? Like reasons that people stay well. I mean, mm -hmm. we, for years and years, um, you know, always were focusing on why are people sick? like the disease yeah. model. And mm -hmm. this ludogenesis uh, model came in through Antonovsky. I probably am butchering his name, but he's a, um, a, a medical sociologist, I believe, um, from the 80s. And he did this model of salutogenesis and about this theory of, of well-being through understanding why people stay well. So it, it kind of goes into everything that, that optimal HRV is trying to do with this notion of, you know, improving the stress response in a lot of ways. So um, the idea was that this enhancement of resilience would be a real marker for, or a real sort of process for why some of these things are getting better. And we do see an enhancement in resilience now the biometric of resilience, as we all know now, is HRV. Yeah. I mean, that is what's so cool about this is we not only have these, these um, you know, subjective ratings. Yes, these tools are wonderful because they're valid, reliable. They've sure. been you know, put through uh, lots of research and, and scientific study, but I think when it comes to you know granting agencies at the federal level, they really like things like biometric data, yeah. something that people can't sort of trick, right? Quantitative. quantitative. Yes, well, the, the others are quantitative too, but these yeah. are like, these are physiological. Right. And that's what's so powerful here is that we have something physiological. Now with that said, I didn't get the best data physiologically from our study participants. And that is what I would do differently next time. I told them, which this is why we do pilot studies. I would tell them this again. I told them that they could get their HRV readings. We have these uh, um, you know, short three minute HRV readings that we get through the optimal HRV app. I said, you can do that any time of the day. Just get five for me in the beginning of the study five at the end of the study, any time of the day. Well, that brought in a ton of user error variability, like circadian rhythm problems. So I just wanted them to do it. I was afraid yeah. if I started like dictating when they should do these things that they wouldn't do it. 
So I'm like, just get it for me. Just get it done. Like, I don't even know if they were like, you know, I told them to be like still, but um, we don't know for sure, like how, how valid those readings were. So we had tons of variation. With that said, we still had increases. Was it 15 or 10%? It was, uh, yeah. it was in that range of 10 or 15% increases in HRV during that, that short period of time. So we were seeing some real biometric improvements as well. They were not statistically significant. And I can say right away that it's really hard to get statistical significant, statistically significant changes when you're dealing with massive variation. Right. And we had massive yeah. variation from HRVs around six to HRVs in the hundreds. Yeah. So well, that was one of my, that was one of those conversations I had with you that really stuck with me is, you, you know, what are we, what do we want to see after four weeks? What, 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 what is like, and I think these are just questions that I'm so excited folks like you are asking with us. It's like, okay, like if we would do this again, what 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 do we see you know and we're almost treading new ground especially with specific disordered like disordered eating for example where we're probably getting the initial data sets that the universe has ever kind of seen around some of this stuff so it's so exciting to start to sort of ask those questions because four weeks neurobiologically epigenetically not a ton of time which right. is what you know and so when you start to look at some of this, uh, you know, and obviously we're the day, even a little bit of a edge in a short period of time might be incredibly exciting. I think that there's just those questions to, to ask. And that's where I think control groups and other things, the, all that, all that stuff that you remind double blind, all that stuff that I can at least <laughs> spout out. Uh, don't make me define it here on the podcast, but I remember the words at least from those tests that uh, my, my statistics teacher taught me. So, you know, but, but it's interesting that we can start to really ask these, these questions and to get more data on that. And then what, what does this data mean since it is in many ways looking at it in somewhat isolation? I think that isolation is shrinking, uh, but especially in the mental health world where we're sort of, you know, in this, you know, charting new ground. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I definitely think that there's something going on in the parasympathetic nervous system. We are, you know, you know, we are training that sort of bagel tone in folks as they improve and as they continue to do biofeedback. And those changes, those, you know, real physiological changes are allowing us to see these psychological changes, self-compassion and intuitive eating and body appreciation, the things that, you know, that are allowing people to not only be kinder towards themselves, but then to take care of themselves, um, you know, with the, the eating behaviors, loss of control eating, disordered eating, and, and the disordered eating um, uh, outcome that we measured include, included dietary restriction. So, high levels of of restraint behaviors like pathological restraint were evident in you know in the dietary um i, I mean in the uh, disorder eating scale and so we were even able to move that so you know it, it's not just and that's something in the eating disorders field we care a lot about because you know you say okay loss of control eating is is one end of the disorder spectrum well, what about the dietary restraint end? Yeah. And, and that was, that's in there too. So we're really shifting things from, you know, many different angles here. Yeah. And again, uh, some of the just fascinating questions is the diet restriction because intermittent fasting is ginormous right now in the wellness. So, you know, uh, you were sharing some data where restrictive eating, you know, maybe where it gets to uh, the, you know, the unhealthy end of the spectrum. Absolutely. You know, we, we might actually see some short-term increases law, you know, again, just big question marks 
that if we can get some data to fill in like these blanks, uh, you know, it's just going to help to inform the the care delivery side of all this, which is, you know, really exciting uh, to start to establish some of these these baselines. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I just have a lot of hope and I have a lot of excitement. I feel like this is something that um, that blends very well into into my theoretical frameworks of how I approach my research from what we call a weight inclusive care perspective. This is a, a biometric that I think we have to be very mindful of not ever moralizing, Absolutely. not ever having it be used Perfect. in a way that is going to be uh, normalized and presented as this is the range that you should be in. Yeah. Yep. That, you know, that is, that is the bad road that we went down with the BMI. And we know yeah. that there's so many problems that are inherent to using the BMI as a biometric to, you know, to measure anything, right. let alone health. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So cool, I, cool evaluate. yeah, so with HRV, we, we have, we're at a very, I mean, HRV is not new, but we are at sort of an infancy stage. Right. The way it's used in, in healthcare, in medicine, in mental health. And if we do it carefully and from this weight inclusive perspective, so we're not moralizing where people fall, then I think we're going to be much, much better off in, in helping folks have a new window into their well-being. Absolutely. Maybe. Yeah, so, Jeff, I, I have about 20 more questions. I'm, I'm going to suppress. <laughs> I got to moderate here. I'm sorry. I'm going to suppress it because I know we're, we're hitting about the 60-minute mark. So, yeah. uh, so I appreciate that. We will have a follow-up, absolutely, um, as your research continues. So I guess last question I think everybody's probably interested in is, so where are you going to take this now? What's the... You know, what's yeah. the next step as you've come to such interesting conclusions with the you know, feasibility study? Where, where do you go from here? So much is left to be done. As I said, replication, replication, replication is sort of the mantra of our, uh, our field, psychological research. And um, so my next step, well, not exactly replicating in this population. Um, I am interested in looking at how we can use HRV and HRV biofeedback in people who are training to become healthcare practitioners. And particularly because I am situated in a doctoral training program for psychology, I feel now seeing how stressed out students are. <laughs> I mean, not, not that I haven't seen that before. I mean, I've been <laughs> in academia for 20 years, but, uh, but, you know, being sort of like really amidst a lot of, of stress in this very vulnerable training stage for folks studying to be clinical psychologists. My next step is to uh, work with all of you and write a grant to try to implement this kind of study with students who are in their first practicum experience. So folks who are taking on new patients for the first time, the amount of stress that, that I mean, Matt, I'm sure you remember yeah. <laughs> that you know it's entailed in what the heck am I doing and, yeah <laughs> facing a person and knowing that their mental well-being is being placed in your lap is yep. really I mean it's it's one and of sometimes your peers are watching from behind yes yep and you know at least in the clinic at my college got my graduate program it wasn't like the severity of the cases were low. It was like, I, I remember, I'll never forget my first client. It was, it was intense. And there were sessions where I had 15 people watching me and critiquing me. Yes, that's yeah, stressful. Yeah. That, I, 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 stressful. That is yeah. absolutely stressful. It would have been interesting to see what happened with my heart rate variability. Right? Because, yeah. 
I, I think it ups. probably would have been good because I enjoyed the performance aspect of life, but who I, I was also uh, probably uh, lacking quite the self-confidence I developed later on. So. Right, right. I mean, these, these are generally a very young individuals. Yes. I mean, we have a range of, of ages, of course, but they're generally very young and we, you know, we want to ensure yeah. that they have the resilience and the capacity to handle the kinds of life stressors that are coming their way. Because they're not just treating patients now, they're also taking lots of classes, yes. including statistics. And <laughs> so so my, my hope is that we can get this funding, we can um, have the, the students use the Optimal HRV app in this a similar way as I did for the healthcare practitioners in the uh, Biofeedback for Champs study. And I would, of course, make some of those adjustments. You know, hopefully we won't have as, as many issues with the device connections. You know, once I, you know, kind of figure out those kind of speed bumps, I will mm -hmm. definitely... This time I want to incorporate, and I think Matt, you really taught me a lot about this. I want to incorporate the use of the HRV itself, yeah. the HRV morning readings itself as a barometer mm -hmm. for how to teach the students how to take care of themselves that day. I mean, yeah. just in that sort of immediate feedback moment, I started doing it personally and have really just feel like it has benefited my ability to know what I can take on. Yep. And, and I feel like, you know, if the student has that sort of window into what's going on for them, that they, you know, they, they can preempt some things, you know, let's not push ourselves today. Let's not yeah. go on that, you know, that long run or, or do that long intensive workout if, if our body's saying like, hey, you need to take it easy. Yeah. So I do want to incorporate the HRV daily reading component in this new study and uh, as well as, you know, the measures like I did um, in the last study. And, and I'm wondering this time if I do this morning daily HRV reading, if we will, if we do the pre-five-day measurement average and then the post-five-day measurement average again, if just doing it every day and kind of using that feedback for how to take care of yourself and, yeah. and how to sort of, you know, plan your day, then I wonder if we will see a little bit bigger shift this time, maybe not 10, 15%, but maybe that 20% or 25% or maybe even something greater than that. I know I've seen these shifts in my own HRV. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, that that's the exciting thing. They don't have to come into a lab anymore to, to get those sort of, or you don't have to go to a biofeedback professional. Now, biofeedback professionals have their place. Exactly. Like, like, like you said, to me, this is sort of like, as, as a therapist, we gave, we, we'll give anybody homework. We love our homework. So to me, this is like journaling in some ways. Here's something that exactly. we know has been shown, you know, that's kind of the biofeedback piece, you know, is that, that practice is like journaling is. Is that therapy in and of itself? Not for the vast majority of people. Right. But does it supplement what the therapist is helping you with? Absolutely shown you know, in, in gazillion studies over. So, you know, you've got that, but then you can track this also as an outcome. Exactly. Uh, is what I'm doing helping Matt? Is what I'm doing helping Jeff? You know, you know, it gives you that, that That's ability right. to, to run the end of one. And then, you know, for us to also to, to increase that in and look at it from a group perspective as well. Exactly. And having these, uh, these student peers, I mean, the whole idea in this new study will be to have peer coaches, so folks who have been through the first practicum, so maybe the third year students, the fourth year students, acting as coaches. So when they see the, the lovely thing about the optimal app is that dashboard. Yeah. When they see their peers have a couple of days, you know, in the the red zone, you know, having that decreased HRV for a few days having somebody check in on you and say, yeah. Hey, like, what can I do to help? And like, what kind of supports do you need? Like, 
Like, let's talk through your self-care action plan. And that I think could be very powerful for, for students and, you know, both the person in the, in the coach shoes, because they're in training too. Yes. And the, the person in their first year practicum. Awesome. Well, I, I know I speak for so Jeff good. and everybody on our team that our fingers are crossed uh, yeah. to, to do that because listeners to the podcast know that the self-care wellness, <laughs> big piece of why we did this as well, because if the, the helpers and healers are wounded and, and hurt, uh, just not going to be able to give the, the level of quality that, that our folks need. So exactly. that's it. This has been an awesome this, show. Yeah, uh, yeah like I said, Janelle, I got like four or five questions, but I'm afraid they would turn into their own episode. <laughs> Another hour. <laughs> I'm going to put those in my back pocket and probably reach out to you sometime this summer to, to come back on. And um, it is it, it's a tremendous honor to have you uh, in our orbit now and as a board member, uh, you know, to, to really continue uh, the great work that you're doing and support that. So I want to thank you. Um, uh, you can find optimalhrv.com. You can find show notes for this episode. Uh, uh, I'll uh, get a bio from Janelle to throw in there as well with her information. Uh, like I said, if you uh, missed it, we have a YouTube channel as well. So you can see some of those uh, slides if you want to uh, at some point uh, look at the video and uh, see all of our good looking faces. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Janelle, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure as always. Looking forward thank to you. It's continuing been a the discussion and all the good work together. Absolutely. You guys take care. Take care, everybody.